Let's pray. Father, we open the word together this morning with uh, hearts that are open as well. We want to hear from you. And, and Father, ask your Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Make your truth come alive in our hearts. Father, fill us, flood us with uh, faith that what we hear to be from you, we readily receive and embrace and, and make application of in our lives. Father, help us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, it was the 2nd of July, and the year was 1863, and on a small hill south of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, the Union Colonel Strong Vincent spoke these words to a fellow Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. Joshua Chamberlain was a Bowdoin College professor who had volunteered to serve with the Union Army in the Civil War. And he had been put in charge of the ragtag 20th Maine, which had been, had been bloodied in several battles and had, his strength had now been reduced really to less than a few hundred. But they were given by Strong Vincent the responsibility of securing this small hill south of Gettysburg called Little Round Top. And it was their job to secure that hill in the battle against all enemy assault. Strong Vincent spoke at least something similar to these words that morning when he gave the orders to Joshua Chamberlain. He said, you are the extreme left of the Union Army. Understood? The line runs all the way back from here to Cemetery Hill, but it ends here. You cannot withdraw under any conditions. If you go, this line will be flanked. If you go, the enemy will sweep up over the hillside and take this entire army from the rear. You must defend this place to the last. In the good providence of God, Chamberlain and his beat-up 20th Maine defended Little Round Top against a repetitive series of assaults by the 15th Alabama. Secured Little Round Top, the Union Army was not flanked. It changed the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg, which changed the outcome of the Civil War. Joshua Chamberlain was indeed one of the heroes of Gettysburg. Open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. We'll begin our study with verse 10, this section, verses 10 through 20, that we've entitled Standing Firm in the Christian Faith is every bit as necessary as it was for Joshua Chamberlain to stand firm that that morning on Little Round Top, indeed, it is even more urgent that we stand firm. This section in Ephesians closes out the second half of the book. The emphasis of the second half of this book is upon the application of the great redemptive truths that Paul presented in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Five times in this section of the book, Chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul uses a, a particular verb, peripatao, translated walk, and it, and it points to the, to the new and distinctive lifestyle that the, that the readers of this letter were to adopt in light of the reality of who they now were in Christ. So just to, to get us thinking about all of that, follow with me, and we'll just trace Paul's statements here five times where he says to walk, chapter 4 and verse 1, where he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Secondly, over in verse 17, 
He says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Chapter 5, verse 2, that you walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light, are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then finally, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And of course, you'll remember that that final imperative here to walk leads us into that extended study of the Spirit-filled life, and in particular, how uh, we as followers of Christ are to walk in the various um, relationships within the Christian family. So husbands and wives and parents and children and, and slaves and masters of that day. But here now in chapter 6 in verse 10, uh, Paul is, is drunk, going to draw on, he's, he's really bringing this letter to a conclusion, and he's going he's to draw on the teachings that he has given in this letter about the Christian life and close it with a challenge to the readers or listeners, in, our case, in the case of some, and he's going to do this using a battle imagery because we are involved in a, in a great cosmic struggle. And the struggle that we are engaged in is with the, with the forces of evil, the spiritual evil forces that lie out there and that have been conquered in the cross of Christ but are still have not yet surrendered. Their, their fate is sealed, but they haven't surrendered. And they remain quite active and they are quite dangerous. And so four times here in verses 10 through 20, in this final section of the letter, Paul uses the word histemi, which is translated stand in the New American Standard three of the times, and then in one other place there's an intensified uh, verb, uh, version of it, and, it, and it's uh, to resist, but it's the same root word, histemi, and Paul uses it to convey the need for, for us believers, for those believers in that day to, to live a life pleasing to the Lord by being actively engaged in the battle that's going on all around them. So, chapter 6, verse 11, we find the first occurrence of this word histemi, or to stand, where Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Down in verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist. That's just an intensified form of the same word. Resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then fourth and finally in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the overarching commands of this section are for you and I as, as followers of Christ, as, as children of the living God, as the, as the new creation in Christ in which Jew and Gentile come together on equal footing called the church. Our job is to stand firm in the face of the onslaught of the enemy. And we are to do so, uh, Paul will say here, by putting on the full armor of God. So in this section, in these verses here, we're going to find Paul giving us a three-part strategy. And this is our outline. A three-part strategy for standing firm in the Christian faith. Verses 10 through 20, a three-part strategy for standing firm in the Christian faith. We're going to look at the first of those this morning together, and that's in verses 10 through 13, and it is to stand firm by perceiving your enemy. We stand firm by perceiving our enemy. Now notice how Paul begins here. Finally, he says, that just clues us in that, there's, that he's summarizing here. He's drawing things to a conclusion. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might, or, or translated another way, in his mighty strength. So be strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. Finally, that's what Paul wants. And this imperative here, to be strong in the Lord, is, is in the passive voice. And, and so it could, what, it, what he's conveying by this is the idea of be made strong. Okay, so finally be made strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength, or be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty strength. So in other words, they are not to try to strengthen themselves. But what Paul wants for them is to lay hold of the power of the Lord that comes to them from an external source. And who is that external source? Well, it is the Lord himself, right? Be strong, be strengthened in the Lord. The Lord is Christ. Okay, in, in this letter to the Ephesians, the Lord is Christ. So, so be strengthened in the strength of Christ is what Paul is saying. Finally, after all that I have written to you, finally, here's what it's going to boil down to. Be strengthened in the strength of Christ. In other words, make use of the power of Christ. The power that has been put at your disposal, the, the power of the risen and ascended Christ who is in authority and has been placed in authority over all things, right? Look back to chapter 1. Paul is reaching all the way back here into chapter 1 and verses 20 to the end of the chapter. Where, it's, where uh, he writes here, uh, the working of the, of the strength of the Father's might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and given him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So be strengthened in the, in the might or the power or the strength of the one who has been placed in authority over all the universe. Okay. Finally, this is what we must do. If we are going to stand firm for the Lord, this is what we must do. Now previously, Paul has prayed, verse 18 here in chapter 1, that they would understand this power of the ascended Christ and over in chapter 3, verse 16, he, he prays that they would, that they would uh, experience this power personally, right? That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, chapter 3, verse 16, to be strengthened with this power through his spirit in the inner man. Now finally here, what he wants the, the believers to do is to, is to access this power for the fight that lies at hand. Okay? He wants them to utilize the power to be strengthened by it so that they can stand firm against the onslaught of a very cunning and very powerful and unseen enemy, an unseen enemy. And how do the believers go about that? How are we to go about that? It is by putting on the armor of God, right? Chapter 6, verse 11, be strengthened Tap into the power and might of the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ. How? By putting on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. God is the one who supplies the armor. It is the armor of God. Okay, The armor from God. God's armor, we could even say. And the comprehensive nature of this armor that has been placed at our disposal is made manifest here when you see the, 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 the adjective full armor, right? Put on the full armor of God, verse 11, down in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. In other words, what has been made available to these believers, what has been made available to you and I, is the complete set of armor, everything we need. There is nothing missing in order to enable us to stand firm in the fight. Okay, do you got that? God has placed at our disposal, through the power of the resurrected Christ, every single thing that you or I need as a child of God this morning to stand firm in the face of the onslaught 
of this unseen and powerful enemy, the devil and his minions. So what is this armor? If we are to put on the full armor of God, what is this armor? Well, down in verses 14 through 17, Paul will spell it out, and that's for next time. Okay, Paul will spell it out down in verses through 17, uh, 14 to 17 in, in six different items or pieces of armor, as it were. Okay? But what I want to do with you now, just before we leave the statement here, is I, is I want you to look at a connection. And I want you to, to see this connection, and then I want you to meditate on this connection in the, in the week before us, so that when we come back here next week to look at the individual pieces of armor, you'll be in a good place to be able to understand where we're going with this and how to process it. What I want you to look back at is chapter 4 and verse 24. Okay? Now remember, this is a letter that was designed to be read from beginning to end. No verses, no chapter breaks, no extended three-year sermon series. This was intended to be read from the beginning and heard from beginning to end. And the reason I just point that out is because, some, you know, we have to keep going back and making these connections because it's been, you know, I don't know, it's been more than a year, I think, since we were back here in chapter 4 and verse 24. So it would be obvious that we wouldn't, it wouldn't be ringing in our ears like it would be for them, okay? They were way smarter than we were, and they only needed to hear it once, and then they got it all, okay? Right. But I want you to go back here uh, because it's, it's really helpful connection. Now, notice in chapter 4, verse 24, Paul says, Put on the new self. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay? He's instructing them back there to, to put on the new self. And this new self has been created, right, to be like God in righteousness and truth. Now, I want you to look over to chapter 6 and just let your eyes scan down to verse 14. And notice how he begins with the armor here. He talks about uh, the armor being truth and righteousness. Do you see it? In verse 14. Okay? Truth and righteousness. Now, back to chapter 4. Okay? Just make that mental note. Go back to chapter 4. Hang with me on this. Okay? It's worth it. Okay? It's worth it. From chapter 4, verse 25 forward, all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul has been elaborating on what needs to be put off, right? You notice verse 22 of chapter 4, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, right? Lay aside the old man, put off the old man, to use the language of the King James. And verse 24, put on the new man. Beginning in verse 25, Paul has been talking consistently about what it is that needs to be put off. What is the old man that needs to be put off? What does he look like? And so 20, verse, uh, verse 25 of chapter 4, all through chapter 5 and through the first part of chapter 6, has been about the old man that needs to be put off. Now, beginning here in verse 10 through 20, as Paul develops the last section of the applicational half of the book, he is, he is developing what it means to put on the new self. Okay? Do you get this? So it's been all about the stuff that has to be put off. Now it's about what has to be put on. He's going to detail what needs to be put on here. So we can say, and, and, and I think it's correctly so, that, that essentially to put on the new self... Chapter 4, verse 24, is the same thing as putting on the full armor of God. Okay? Chapter 6, verse 11. All right? So just hang on to that connection. All right? You had to put off the old man. You had to put on the new man. What does it mean to put on the new man? It means to put on the armor of God. It means to put on the armor of God. Okay? So we'll explore in a lot more detail Verses 14 through 17 and the pieces of armor and all the rest of that, okay? But the, the big idea is this. It's what, it, it's what we are to do. It's what we are to replace all that has been put off with. We are to replace it with the armor of God, okay? So all Christians, all Christians are to put on the armor of God. 
Now, why? Why do we have to put on the armor of God? And the answer is, is because our enemy is very cunning, right? He's deadly. He's active. He's engaged in an attempt to destroy us. Verse 11, so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is why we must put on the full armor of God. Our enemy is out there, and he is dangerous, and he is cunning, and he is deadly, and he is active, and he is seeking our destruction. Now, in our day, I think it's undeniable that there is a, a growing measure of demonically organized opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. I think that's for sure true. But in acknowledging that reality, I don't want to neglect the other reality, which is that, that our spiritual enemies are also actively at work seeking to overthrow my faith and yours, seeking to destroy my testimony and your testimony at an individual level. So the attack is not merely a corporate, it is a personal, individual attack. And we don't talk much about this. We don't talk much about it, and I guess one of the reasons we don't is because we only, when we come to the section in the Scripture, then we talk about it. So I'm not trying to, to, to say, you know, there's a demon under every single bush and, you know, they're always out to get you, but I am telling you this, that the demonic is real, it is active, it is wicked, and it is seeking your destruction. Is seeking your destruction. Now, Paul describes the, the, the battle here with the forces of darkness, and he does so, verse 12, by, by drawing on a word from the realm of wrestling. Pele is, a, is the Greek word. It means to struggle, for our struggle. And that's a, that's a wrestling word. It's a, it's a grappling kind of word. And it's a unique word to the New Testament. It's only here. And some, some commentators wonder, okay, he starts out with a kind of a battlefield analogy here, and now he, he switches over to wrestling. So which is it? Is it wrestling? Is it battlefields or whatever? And I, I think it's both. And I think the reason Paul has chosen a wrestling word to, to characterize this battle that's going on here is because it, it, it conveys the idea that the battle is very personal, and it, and it is strenuous and of a hand-to-hand kind of nature, that the spiritual conflict that I am engaged in and that you are engaged in with the, with the realm of darkness is a hand-to-hand -hand combat, a hand-to-hand -hand combat. In other words, beloved, we don't fight the fight that we're, that we're called upon to fight here with drones, okay? We don't, we don't battle the forces of darkness using drone technology. Nor is our enemy, notice what Paul says here, flesh and blood. Nor is our enemy flesh and blood. In other words, our enemy is not human. It is not human. Beyond that, Paul would, would have us understand here when he says this, this wrestling, verse 12, is not against flesh and blood, not against humanity, but is against these, these uh, demonic forces, he would have us understand that because that's the reality, that, that humanly speaking, we are helpless against them. If my worst enemy were merely flesh and blood, I could take some martial arts training and hold my own, right? But when my enemy is the unseen world, the spirit realm, not the flesh and blood realm, then humanly speaking, I'm helpless. How do I fight against what I cannot see? What I cannot see, what I cannot touch, what I cannot touch. 
So I am helpless. And so are you. And I am alone in this fight. Like a wrestling match, I am alone in this fight. I am, I am grappling in a fight to the death with a defeated and yet nonetheless very, very deadly foe. And because I am alone in this fight, nobody can fight this fight for me. And nobody can fight it for you. You are, if you are a child of God this morning, you are involved in a wrestling match. And you are involved in this intense hand-to-hand -hand combat with an enemy that you cannot see, that is after you, wants to destroy you, and is very, very powerful. And nobody else can fight the fight for you. Young people, your mom and dad can't fight this fight for you. They can't. Your friend cannot fight the fight for you. You can't, you can't tap your friend, right? You know, like in some sort of, you know, relay wrestling thing where I tap out and you come in and take over for me. That doesn't happen. Your pastor cannot fight this fight for you. Your teachers cannot fight the fight for you. Your siblings cannot fight the fight for you. No one can fight this fight for you because the, the, the fight is against not against flesh and blood. Humanly speaking, it is yours and yours alone. That's why. That is why we must personally put on the full armor of God. Otherwise, we will surely fall. We will surely fall. Do you, do you, do you sense the importance of this? Husbands, your wife can't do this for you. She can't, putting on her armor, defends, puts her in a position to stand strong. It doesn't put you in the position to stand strong. You must put on your own armor. And wives in the same way. Now, who are these enemies? Who are these enemies in which we are engaged in, in such an intense spiritual struggle? And how do they attack us? How do they attack us? I mean, as we said, Paul's speaking here about the demonic realm of Satan and his minions. And some try to classify and arrange the, what Paul has to say here in, in verse 12 into some sort of hierarchy of, of demonic spirit beings. The problem with that is, is that nobody can agree what the hierarchy is and what the differences are. He says here in verse 12, he, he lists two right away. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against humans, but against the rulers, against the powers, the NASB translates it. Actually, I think it would be better translated authorities. That's what the word is. So the first two categories of, of spirit beings against whom we are engaged in this hand-to-hand -hand combat are the rulers and the authorities. Now, Paul has previously mentioned these rulers and authorities, right? Go back again to chapter 1 and verse 21. And notice that the, that the ascended Christ has been placed far above, not just a little bit above, far above, verse 21, all rule and authority. Okay, same words. All rule and authority. So, so Christ has been, been placed, you know, way, way over these demonic forces. Over in chapter 3, verse 10, we find him again. Paul writes, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay? These, these demonic beings. So Christ is in a full authority over them, both now and in the age to come. That's why we must be strengthened with power, right, in the inner man by putting on the full armor of God. In other words, we need to put on Christ. All right, I tip my hand. We have to put on Christ, okay, the armor of God. 
Now, back here in chapter 6, we have these rulers and authorities, and we have a third term, the world forces of this darkness. The world forces of this darkness. Again, it's a unique term in the New Testament. There's no other, it's not used anywhere else, so there's no other place to go to try to get an understanding of who it is and what it is he's talking about. And again, there's not common agreement among Bible commentators. Some think that it's a reference to, to the pagan gods of Paul's day that were certainly closely associated with demonic beings. You can uh, let your mind just think back to Acts 19. You remember Artemis of the Ephesians, also known as Diana, as her Roman name, right? And you remember the, the uh, riot that broke out in Ephesus in Acts 19, and, and I can't remember how many hours it was that they, they were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? And so some think that that's a reference here, these world forces of darkness to the, to the, to the demonic spirits that were behind the, these pagan gods and goddesses and idols and so forth. So it could be, that could be. We're just not sure. And then finally, there's a general term here, the fourth term, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I think he's just gathering it all up there. So I don't think that's like a fourth independent category. I think it's more of a comprehensive description of the hostile spirits that are arrayed against us. All right? So when you put it all together, I think what Paul is basically saying here is he, is he is warning the believers, he's warning us that there is a multitude of very dark, very powerful spirit beings that are seeking your ruin, that are seeking your ruin. How? How are they seeking your ruin? There's a helpful quote I have for you here. I think we've, we've got it to show it to you as well. It's by, um, uh, in the uh, NIV application commentary, and I think it's good. A guy by the name of Snodgrass, he's, he's, he says the following. He says, mention of the schemes of the devil, right, verse 11, you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation presents themselves in our lives. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goals. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. And that reminds me of James chapter 1. Another author writing about this, he says the fact that Paul uses a plural here, right, the schemes of the devil, down the end of verse 11, right, the plural schemes, not scheme, but plural schemes, implies that, that they, these schemes are either constantly repeated or of incalculable variety. In other words, there's so many different ways that the evil spirit world is attacking us. There's not just a few ways they come at you. They come at you in all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. So I thought for the rebalance of our time here, as we're, we're trying to perceive the strategies of the evil one, is to, is to look at some of the schemes that Satan and his minions use to attack me and to attack you, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, okay? This is not an exhaustive list, right? If they are of incalculable variety, in other words, I can't make a list long enough that would include every single way. But what I've done is I've just sort of moved through the New Testament and, and, and from it extracted a number of the ways that... that Satan uses the, from the pages of the New Testament, okay? And so you can extrapolate from that. So here we are. The first is challenging God's Word. One of the first schemes of the devil is to challenge the Word of God. And for that, I'm going to take you back to Genesis chapter 3. 
which is a very, very instructive chapter. Genesis chapter 3. We'll see how we do here time-wise. Uh, we've got a lot of them to look at. We'll see if we can get through them all. We may or may not be able to look up every single reference. We'll see. But it begins... In Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And we know that the, the spirit, invisible spirit being that is animating the serpent here is the devil. It is the devil. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden." He begins by challenging the word of God. Has God really said this? Has God really said this? Now I was thinking about that. How do we apply that? Because I, I do think that is one of the ways that Satan comes after us, is to challenge the authority of the word of God. Has God really said that? So I was just thinking about um, the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Has God really said, wives, submit to your own husband? Has he really said that? Is that what he really means? Or husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Is that what he really means? Children, obey your parents. Really? Is that what God means? Listen, there are plenty of people today who will tell you that, that God doesn't mean any of that. Not any of it. So I think one of the schemes of the devil is to come and to, and to outright challenge the Word of God. Second, lying. Another scheme of the devil is lying, and it's, it's right here in the same chapter. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You surely will not die. In other words, yeah, God said you will die, but, but you're not going to die. It's not going to kill you. I think about Ephesians Chapter 5, verse 5, know, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You surely will not die. It's okay to, to look at pornography. It won't kill you. You won't die. It's okay to, to engage in the, in the immoral behaviors of the world around us and, and indeed to see them as entertainment factors. It won't kill you. Look, everybody's doing it. They don't look dead. You remember what Jesus said about Satan, right, in John 8, 44, that he was a murderer from the beginning, and that when he lies, he speaks from his own nature, for he is the father of lies. Beloved, there are lies all over the place seeking our destruction. Thirty. So is the seed of discontentment. Back to Genesis 3. The seed of discontentment. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman took it. She saw the tree was good for food. Verse 6, right? Delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She took it, she ate, and she died. Listen, God just wants you to be happy. 
God just wants you to be happy. Right? That's all he wants for you. And so, what's, what's with all of this straight-laced Christianity stuff? He just wants you to be happy. Fourth, one of Satan's schemes, I think, is challenging our identity as children of God. Luke chapter 4. Another very instructive chapter when it comes to the schemes of the devil. This is Jesus' confrontation in the wilderness with Satan. Verse 3, chapter 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are really the Son of God, then tell the stone to become bread. Perhaps to you and I, it's more like if you're really a child of God, if you were really a child of God, you wouldn't be struggling like this. If you were really a child of God. If you were really a child of God, you, you wouldn't have said that, what you just said, or, or, or done what you had just done, or you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have sinned if you were really a child of God. Not all strategies, by the way, are probably a good place to say this. Not all strategies are equally effective against every single person. That's why there's a variety of them. So for some, it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. They, they begin to wonder in their own mind, am I really a child of God? It takes them out of the fight. It may take them out of the church for the rest of their lives. It's dangerous, deadly. He offers an alternative to obedience, number five. Another scheme. He offers an, an alternative to obedience, verses five through seven. He offers Christ a crown without a cross, right? And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and his glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. You don't have to obey. God will bless you anyway. He'll bless you. Six. Scripture twisting. Scripture twisting. First John 2, 22 and 23. First John 2, 22 and 23. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Huh. What's the strategy of the, of the cults, right? The Christian knockoffs. It's to come to your door and, and to twist the Scriptures to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture twisting. Seven, the fear of death. I won't go there with you. You can check it on your own, but Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The writer there says that it is through the fear of death that Satan maintains control over people. People engage in all kinds of weird religious ceremonies because they are afraid to die. They're afraid to die. Eight, Infiltrating false teachers into the church. Infiltrating false teachers into the church. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, verse 1, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
infiltrating the false teachers into the church. Paul warns in Acts 20 and verse 29 to the Ephesian church. He says that after I leave, savage wolves will arise, even from among you, to tear the flock. One of Satan's strategies is to, is to infiltrate false teachers. In Israel, it was false prophets. In the church, it's false teachers into the church in order to, to sow the seeds of, of, of um, death and defeat among the people of God. Another strategy, number nine, is sexual temptation. Satan and his minions bring sexual temptation as a way to undermine the faith of God's people and, and, and take them out of the battle so they cannot stand firm. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Marriages that, that do not have a, a, a regular expression of physical intimacy are marriages that are vulnerable to satanic attack. Okay? Think on it and the Lord will give you wisdom. Number 10, promoting bitterness, jealousy, and unforgiveness is another means of attack. James chapter 3 Verses 14 and 15. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. I can never forgive that person. I'll never forget what they did to me. That kind of uh, bitterness and hanging on to personal slights or, or even grievous sins against us leaves an opening for the evil one. Number 11, promoting unrighteous anger. Right? Chapter 4 of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, we Spent a whole Sunday talking about this. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. A heart that is, that is consumed by anger and, and feeding anger is a heart that is open to the schemes of the devil. Right? Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33. For the churning of milk produces butter, and pressing the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of anger produces strife. Okay, the churning of anger produces strife. Proverbs 30, verse 33. That's why Satan loves loves to churn anger in people because it produces strife among the people of God. Destroys the church, destroys them. Twelve. Another scheme of the devil is to incite persecution. To incite persecution of the believers. For example, Revelation chapter 2 Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Or 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and following. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, 
who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Satan incites persecution of the believers as a scheme to destroy them. Thirteen. I have 14 of these, by the way. Some of you have the notes and you already know that. I have 14. Thirteen. False signs and wonders. False signs and wonders. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It's another scheme of the devil. Another way in which the, the unseen spirit world battles against the believers. Verse 8, chapter 2, 2 Thess. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. With all deception of wickedness, he goes on to say. Listen, all kinds of things happen that are beyond our ability to understand or describe or attribute. I would never say to somebody, somebody says to me, you know, such and such happened to me. How could I possibly say it? No, it didn't. So I wouldn't tell you that it didn't or what, you know, what you think you saw. I'm not telling you you didn't see it. I'm telling you to be careful. That the, the word of God is our, is, our, is our source of truth that is entirely reliable, not our senses, not something we think we saw or dreamed or heard about. And a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend once heard that somebody was raised from the dead. Okay? But the scriptures tell us. I mean, just think about the, the magicians of Egypt, right? And how they counterfeited the signs, right? Aaron threw down his rod and it became a serpent. And what did the evil wizards of, of Egypt do, right? They threw down their staves and they became serpents too. For reasons known to God, he providentially does allow false signs and wonders. That's right, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18 give you the, the test to determine is the prophet really of God or not, including a test of their signs. Okay? So just because someone can do amazing things does not mean their message is true. It could be a scheme of the devil. Fourteen and finally, 1 Corinthians 10, idols, idols as a conduit for demonic activity. First Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What is he talking about? He's talking about meat sacrificed in the temple to idols is really being sacrificed to demons. And what he is, uh, by extension, what he is, is telling us is that there are demons behind the idols. Therefore, for a child of God, there is no place for any of that in your house. None. Okay? Those that come out of the Eastern religions, that's one of the first things they have to face. Is they have to turn their back on the family altar with its idols. Because they understand there are demons behind it. But... For those of you who that's not your background, listen, don't put that stuff in your house like it's some kind of artwork. Have nothing to do with it. It is the realm of the demonic. Okay? Those are just a few. Just a few. The battle is supernatural, beloved, and it is unavoidable. 
It is unavoidable. You don't get to say, do I want to fight or not? The fight is upon us. The fight is upon us. Now listen, fighting such a potent foe, this could, this could be a very frightening kind of message, right? And when you start beginning to consider all of this, this could be terrifying. Terrifying. But I want you to see here, back in Ephesians 6, that Paul doesn't present this with a, a sense of, of fright or imminent defeat. Okay? Instead, he, he presents the reality here, but he, but he does so with a, with a confidence that, that rests upon the victory of Christ. As he says in chapter 2, verse 6, we've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, Christ has been raised up, right, to the heavenly places, and he has been put above all rule and authority and all cosmic powers. And we... With him are seated, Paul says, with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. In other words, his victory is my victory. And if you are a child of God this morning, his victory is your victory. So we do not have to live with a sense in which that, you know, we're going to, we're going to fail. To go back all the way to the beginning, you know, for the, to Joshua Chamberlain here. You must stand. You cannot withdraw from this fight. And he didn't know whether they would prevail or not. And in fact, if you, if you know anything about the battle, they were out of ammunition. And, they, and through, through death and wounds, their, their lines had been thinned even, even more. So he told them to fix bayonets. And they charged down the hill into the face of the enemy and routed them. But he had no idea they would win. None. That's not true for me, and that's not true for you. We do know, not because we're strong, not because we're, we're spiritually powerful, because we're not. But we win because we are united to the one who has won. Do you understand that? Your victory is in Christ, and Christ has, has prevailed. And you will prevail too. But there is still a fight. There is still a fight that has to be had. And so look at verse 13. Therefore, chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand Firm. In other words, once we have put on the full armor of God, we have done everything that, that God would have us do in terms of preparation, and we will stand. We will stand. You will prevail. The evil one will not overcome you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You cannot fail. You will not fail. But you must take up the armor of God. You must recognize that the battle belongs to the Lord. And he has won. And you will win in him. I trust that the Spirit of God will apply this truth to each of us where we need it. Because you may not sense it right now, but some of you do. I can see it in your face. Some of you do. You're fighting right now. You will win. Hang on to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess our neediness. We confess our weakness. We confess our frailties. We confess our divided hearts. We confess the, the power of our own flesh to, to seduce us and to pull us away. We, we do tremble in the, in the face of such powerful and evil spiritual forces arrayed against us. And, and Father, without Christ, we would have no hope. And yet in Christ, we have the victory. He has won. These forces are vanquished. 
It is a mopping up action. And so, Father, help us to live in the tension between these two worlds. Help us to cling to Christ. Not to rely on our own strength. Not to, not to battle with sin and temptation in our own flesh. By our own willpower. By arranging self-help groups. Accountability partners. It can be good, Father, in these things to be sure, but they in and of themselves are not enough. They can't be. For only Christ can prevail, and only Christ has prevailed. Help us, O oh Lord, each of us, to draw close to Christ in our own fight. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Beloved, you're here this morning, some of you, I think, without Christ. And if you are without Christ here this morning, you have no resources, none. I plead with you to, to turn to Christ. Come to Jesus. He is your only hope. I'll be down front here after the service. I would delight to talk with you more and, and show you how, how Jesus desires to save you and will save you if you will but turn to him. God bless you, beloved. I'll see you next time as we take up the individual pieces of the armor of God, okay? Go in peace.